The Daily 202 podcast is brought to you by Facebook. At Facebook, we continue to take steps to better secure our platforms. What's next? We support updated internet regulations to set new standards for data portability, privacy, and elections. Learn more at about.fb.com regulation. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, September 8th. Today, why the new Postmaster General is facing investigation, our collective coronasomnia, and a question of immunity. Please stand and raise your right hands. Do you swear or affirm that the testimony you are about to give is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. Two weeks ago, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy was summoned before the House Oversight Committee. Good morning, Chairwoman Maloney, Ranking Member Comer, and members of the committee. I am proud to be with you today on behalf of the 630,000 dedicated women and men of the United States Postal Service. Louis DeJoy is the new Postmaster General for the United States, in charge of the entire Postal Service. Aaron Davis is an investigative reporter for The Post. Since he took over this position at the beginning of the summer, he has made a series of decisions to try to cut costs, and those have had almost an immediate impact on service. In all of our districts, we are hearing from constituents about significant delays in the delivery of mail. And so he was called to Congress to answer questions about this. And so these members of Congress that were asking him questions, what were they asking him about? You have to look at the context here of all of the things that the president has said in the past many months about the mail. You know the things with bundling and all of the things that are happening with uh, votes by mail. Universal mail-in voting is going to be catastrophic. It's going to make the mailing of ballots this fall, which will be so important because so many people plan to vote by mail or absentee in light of the coronavirus and the COVID pandemic. And if the packages aren't arriving, if the mail isn't arriving, can we have any certainty that people's votes are going to be counted and counted in a timely fashion in November? Perhaps Mr. DeJoy is just doing exactly what President Trump said he wanted on national television, using the blocking of funds to justify sweeping changes to hobble mail-in voting. And that was really the thrust of a lot of these questions. Because there has been this concern that because President Trump has been very public about the fact that he doesn't believe in mail-in voting, that he doesn't think mail-in voting is a good idea, that this Trump appointee might be taking steps to undermine mail-in voting through his position with the Postal Service. The Democrats want to portray you as implementing new policies because of the false narrative that the president wants to somehow sabotage the election. Is that narrative true? I, I, I am not engaged in sabotaging the election. So while this congressional testimony was going on, you were investigating something else about DeJoy's past. There was one question in the course of that hearing. Representative Cooper of Tennessee asked, kind of out of the blue, Did you pay back several of your top executives for contributing to Trump's campaign? by bonusing or rewarding them. 
That's an outrageous claim, sir, and I resent it. I'm just asking a question. The answer is no. And I was listening to this, and my, I got this lump in my throat listening because I was trying to figure out that very question, as were some of my colleagues. To, to be, uh, uh, actually, I, uh, during the Trump campaign, I wasn't even working at my company anymore. And then I realized it wasn't the right question, and it certainly wasn't the answer that was going to unravel what we were working on. So then what was the right question that should have been asked? The right question is, have you ever, not necessarily for Donald Trump, but have you ever reimbursed your employees for donations that they have made to Republican candidates? Mm. And that broader question, there's a lot more evidence. And now we have former employees speaking to that very issue. Wait, so, so where did this all come from? Why was it that this was a question that you were looking at? Well, we had heard this was kind of out there as a rumor, but nobody had really ever run it to ground and explored if there was something there. I mean, the investigative team, we started by just looking to see if there was data to support such a claim or such an investigation. So one thing we did is we went back through every year that uh, Louis DeJoy was in charge of this company called New Breed Logistics. So this is what he was doing before he got to the Postal Service. He was in charge of this company. Right. And this is the part that makes sense about Louis DeJoy as a Postal Service chief because he has experience and a background in logistics. Hmm. Particularly, he was very good at winning contracts from the post office itself for some of the work that they had begun to outsource in the 80s and 90s of folding mail bags or repositioning mail crates, some of the back-end type office work that needs to be done to help the post office work efficiently. He got the contracts around the country to do that, and many were based in North Carolina. That's why they moved the company to North Carolina. So I can imagine that probably would have been part of the argument for why he should be the head of the Postal Service is he could bring this kind of private sector dynamic slash expertise to the Postal Service, make it run better. Exactly. And supporters of his and even many of his employees we've talked to said he is just incredibly detail oriented and, you know, was always very good at figuring out how to please a customer. Well, so when you started to look back at DeJoy's history, especially when he was running this company, what did you start finding? So I've looked at a few companies over the years, law firms, lobbying shops, to try to see if there's a pattern of giving that seems politicized. And in those kind of uh, arrangements, you're looking for times that employees give a lot of the same money on the same day to the same candidate, or that there's a really big discrepancy between the number of employees who are given to one party versus the other party. Because usually, you know, if any given company, there are people on any side of the political spectrum who work there. Mm -hmm. Newbridge Logistics, however, was pretty stark in the campaign contributions that employees were giving. We could identify 124 employees who had given money to candidates between 2002 and 2014 And nearly all of them, well over 90 percent, had given to Republicans. Hmm. And the amount of money that they were giving was even a larger discrepancy. Those 124 employees had given over a million dollars to Republicans, while the nine employees that gave it to Democrats had each given less than $100 each. So it was like $700 to the Democrats, a million to the Republicans. And that's not including the millions that DeJoy himself gave. So there was just this huge imbalance. 
So you talked to some of the employees who were working for DeJoy at the time. What did they say about the culture of this company and why it was that there were all these people who were donating to Republican campaigns? Well, there were a couple of things about this, the culture of this place as we started to talk to employees. And to be perfectly honest, a lot of them were quite hesitant to talk. And you know, everything's fine. Louis DeJoy was great. Loved working for him. And eventually we got to some who started to peel back the curtain a little bit and described a workplace that was very toxic, if you will, that um, he was a, a micromanager on many levels and sometimes berate executives in front of their own underlings. And we also got this sense that there was this other part of working at Newbreed Logistics, and that was knowing that Louis DeJoy was a very political mind and had a voracious appetite for politics and as he began to be very involved, and his wife did as well in the early 2000s, it became expected that not just executives, but on down the line, that employees would go to the fundraisers, especially the ones that he hosted at his multi-million dollar mansion in Greensboro, and that they would all pony up money to the candidate that he was backing. Hmm. And so it's sometimes common to see a handful of executives who lean one way or the other, it was strange to see at Newbreed so many middle manager types, plant operators, warehouse workers, IT specialists, all giving $1,000 donations or more repeatedly. Hmm. These are middle income type employees who usually put that money towards other things in their lives. And so if it was the case that these people felt like it was encouraged for them to donate or that they were kind of pressured to donate, that the, the way that they could get into the good graces of their boss was by donating to Republican campaigns, and it sounds like pretty significant sums. Is that legal? I mean, it seems like such a concerning dynamic if you have a boss who's pressuring his employees to donate to a campaign. The law is a little gray here in that you can encourage people to donate. You can even encourage your own employees to donate. There are specific ways that you're supposed to do that, kind of disclaimers you're supposed to put in such an email to say, you know, you're not obligated, your job's not going to be affected by this, but, you know, you're welcome to come to mm. X and X fundraiser or whatever I'm you know, hosting. There are ways that it's allowed and it's permissible in a workplace. But then, according to former employees, there was this other aspect that could take it beyond what is legal and under any circumstance. And we started to get closer to the executives, the people who were understood what the size and scope of the fundraising and more about the payroll system at Newbreed and begin to tell us that it, the reason that some of these middle manager types were, you saw them contribute the way they did, was that it wasn't always their money. Hmm, what do you mean by that? Well, two former New Breed employees that we've spoken to say that after one of these fundraisers, DeJoy would instruct the people dealing with the payroll and the bonuses to increase the bonus, the amount of money going to some of those who had attended these fundraisers by an amount that would help defray the cost of what they had given politically. These employees would be pleasantly surprised the next time they open their bonus. And then some of the senior vice presidents, the vice presidents would kind of make it clear to the new employees when they gave out the first bonus when you got to the company, you know, here's your bonus for the year and you should buy a ticket to DeJoy's next fundraiser. So according to these employees, there kind of became this link between 
the the political action that employees are expected to take, and then the money that they got on the back end and their bonuses. But if DeJoy and his company were reimbursing employees for their political donations, like, why go through that extra step? Why not just donate directly to campaigns and not pressure employees to make the donations and then pay them back for those donations? Yeah, good question. And this kind of goes to something that unless you're a a regular donor to political campaigns, you might not even know exists, but there are campaign contribution limits. And often those are a couple thousand Mm -hmm. dollars a a person for a federal candidate. And so technically, Louis DeJoy could only give us $2,600 to Senator Tillis for his election campaign. But 50 other people from the company could also give their $2,000. And then it's much more money. And by doing that and having it really come from New Breed Logistics, the employees tell us, and from Louis DeJoy's profits, that really means that Louis DeJoy was the secret hand behind a lot of these donations, the employees say. And that obscures who's really funding politicians, obscures who they're really uh, beholden to once they get into office, and influences elections in a way that's not clear to the public. And that type of arrangement would be illegal under federal election law and under every state law in some way. So when you think about these allegations from some of DeJoy's former employees, is that something that he could theoretically be prosecuted for? Well, there's actually a name for what former employees have described, and it's called a straw donor scheme. And it's one of the few things that the Federal Election Commission has really laid out clearly in law and that prosecutors still routinely prosecute. There have been many high-profile cases over the last couple decades where people have gone to jail or have had to repay money, sometimes large amounts of money, for this very same process. And so it is something that, that he could be investigated for, not just on the federal level, but perhaps more important for him on the state level. There is a five-year statute of limitations for straw donor schemes under federal election law, but there's no statute of limitations in the state of North Carolina for felonies. And some serious campaign finance violations like this are considered felonies. So yes, he could be investigated and very well could be based on some of the public comments that have already been made by the attorney general in North Carolina this weekend. And so what has DeJoy said about this? And has he denied these allegations of this straw donor scheme? Well, so Louis DeJoy responded to us in a statement that said this, During his leadership of New Breed Logistics, Mr. Joy sought and received legal advice from the former general counsel of the Federal Election Commission on election laws, including the law of political contributions, to ensure that he, New Breed Logistics, and any person affiliated with New Breed fully complied with any and all laws. Mr. DeJoy believes that all campaign fundraising laws and regulations should be complied with in all respects. It was a very general statement. And we pointed out in our reporting over the weekend that he still has not directly addressed the scheme that's been alleged by former employees. And considering the fact that this is a person who was appointed by President Trump pretty recently, has the president said anything about these allegations? The president was asked about these yesterday. Thank you, Mr. President. If proven true, are you okay with Postmaster General And he Responded to that question saying that. Do you support an investigation, sir? Sure, sure. And in I think the, let the investigations go, but. If it's proven to be a campaign finance scheme, do you think he should lose his job? Yeah, if something can be proven that he did something wrong, always. You know? Thank you. 
So what happened after you published what you heard from these former employees who used to work for DeJoy? Since we published our story over the weekend, several Democratic members of Congress have called for Mr. DeJoy's resignation. The head of the House Oversight Committee has called for him to be suspended by the Board of Governors and has said the House Oversight Committee will launch an investigation into whether the scheme took place. So then if there are these accusations against DeJoy and if he is going to be investigated, What kinds of questions does that raise about his current leadership at the Postal Service? Well, if you look at the questions a couple weeks ago when he was on Capitol Hill, they were all about, can we trust you? Are you telling us the truth about you're going to take the mail seriously, the election mail seriously? And I think if there's a question that Mr. DeJoy may have lied to Congress or shaded the truth in answering this question about his fundraising, and if in fact he engaged in this scheme as employees say he did, then it further goes to the question of how Congress, the Board of Governors, the Postal Service, and the public can trust how the Postal Service will handle an important, really important few months here for the American public. And that's something the Democratic Attorneys General in several states have already said over the weekend in different ways, that um, it's, it's time for a thorough investigation of the Postmaster General, and he should just step aside or be suspended pending the outcome of these investigations. Aaron Davis is an investigative reporter for The Post. Will you commit, if the inspector general finds that you committed misconduct, will you commit to then resigning? Uh, I don't believe they will find misconduct, but I don't see uh, why I would commit here right now to resigning for any reason. You don't think there's any reason that you should ever resign? No reason that I've heard here today. So, Karin, how have you been sleeping? Well, uh, not great. I, I've actually not been a great sleeper for a long time. I've struggled myself with insomnia for many years and I've pursued different treatments, but I've been struck in recent months by how many of my friends who didn't relate to that experience have started to talk about having their own struggles sleeping, which is one reason I wanted to do some reporting on this topic. My name is Karen Brulliard, and I'm a reporter on the Post's Health and Science Desk. I have to say, I have always been a great sleeper. I remember in college, like, people would laugh at me because I would, like, fall asleep in class. I would fall asleep on benches. I would fall asleep in the library, and I could just really sleep anywhere. And I've mostly been that way for my adult life. But I have found that in the past six months, I just have been having trouble sleeping. And it's a lot of times where it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'm staring at the ceiling, and I'm just thinking about things in the world or things in my life, and just, like spinning in these like anxiety mental circles and it's not always about covid but it started when covid started and i do find that like i am one of these people who has really struggled to sleep this year well you're you're not alone that is something that 
we're seeing signs of in lots of different ways. There were some early reports of increased sleep medication prescriptions. There have been a few studies, surveys done in other countries around the world where people have uh, reported higher rates of insomnia, particularly during lockdowns. And for this article, we spoke to several sleep researchers and, and doctors who said that they're getting more phone calls than they were getting from people who have never struggled with sleep before who are now and from people who already did whose sleep problems have worsened and even from patients who they'd seen previously and treated and had gone away and hadn't heard from for a while and who are coming back now. It's to the point that that some of the researchers I spoke to even have given it sort of a name, coronasomnia or even mm. COVID-somnia. These sleep, sleep problems triggered by a really complicated mix of things that are associated with this very strange upheaval in life that we're all experiencing. The lack of sleep is like walking around during the day in a cloud and your head just never completely clears and no amount of caffeine clears that out. But also you reach a point where, or I reach a point where my body physically starts to tremble a little bit because I just haven't had enough sleep. And even though I keep trying to push it and push it so that I'm really tired to go to bed at night, it doesn't seem like you, I catch up at any point. My colleague William Wan and I spoke to several people for this article, regular people who are struggling with sleep during the pandemic for the first time. One of them was Cheryl Ann Schmidt. She is a 65-year-old woman who lives in Michigan. And up until I was terminated in July, I ran a recycling program for a manufacturing company. And she's struggled with a lot of concerns about feeling lonely, not being able to see family, worry about her retirement plans. For a couple of weeks, she didn't have any health insurance. That was very stressful to her. And it's sort of accumulated to this point, she said, where she'll, anytime she lies down at night, even when she tries to nap, she just is consumed with a sense of dread. My anxiety issues increased to the extent that not being a good sleeper to start with became an even worse sleeper. So no matter what I did, I could try to stay on a regular schedule and go to bed at a normal time. But about two o'clock in the morning, I would wake up and never be able to get back to sleep. Uh, what ultimately has evolved in this is that around 4, 4.30 every morning, I would be laying in bed and I could hear the newspaper hit the ground. And that was my cue that it was okay to get up and uh, start my day. And for other people who are going through the same thing as Cheryl, what is keeping them awake? Like, is everyone staying up all night thinking, am I going to get COVID? Is my family going to get COVID? Or is it more complicated than that? It's more complicated than that. That is one worry that researchers and doctors cited to me and people we spoke to who struggled with this. Some of them cited, you know, worries about getting sick. But there are other things, too, going on. There's a lot of people who are working at home now. 
there is a sort of separation, a boundary between work and home that has been erased at this point. There's also, of course, you know, children at home and people are don't have workspaces. Maybe they're working in the bedroom, which, you know, is bringing sort of stress into the bedroom. And then, of course, there are screens, which we've been told about for years, are problematic for sleep. They emit blue light that is the artificial light that is sort of harmful um, and messes with our our sense of daylight. And we're doing a lot more screens now. You know, I think a lot of people have a somewhat cavalier attitude about sleep, right? That it's like, you know, if you don't sleep as well as you wish you would, welcome to the rest of the world, right? That everybody doesn't get enough sleep. But what are the actual ramifications of that? Yeah, this is something that researchers more and more are trying to sort of ring the alarm bell about. Our sleep has, American sleep has deteriorated over the past you know, 80 years or so. There's, there's, you know, surveys that show that we used to get closer to eight hours of sleep in the early 1940s. And now I think the CDC in 2013 found that a third of Americans are getting less than seven. And, you know, one researcher I spoke to said, this is the third pillar of health. You know, we hear a lot about diet. We hear a lot about exercise, but really people need to understand that sleep is critical for good health, good physical health, good mental health. So there are a lot of associations with other problems and maladies. Um, There's associations with depression. Insomnia is both a a symptom and sort of a trigger for depression. There's associations with um, hypertension, obesity. Um, And then of course, not being rested is causes more stress, causes people to have shorter fuses, causes lower productivity. Not sleeping much is not something we should glorify is what I was hearing a lot of. And if insomnia does become something chronic and something that is plaguing somebody in a, in a way that is really problematic to their life. Is there a way to get help beyond just like, don't look at your phone at night and try to chill out when you're in the time that you're going to bed? Uh, is there something more serious that people can do? Yeah. And I, I said, so we shouldn't scoff at those sort of small things that seem like smaller tips. They, they truly are important. Sleep hygiene is important. But yeah, I think there is professional help available. There's more professional help available than there used to be. Um, You know, I think all the researchers I spoke to said for people who are really struggling with this, speaking to a doctor is important. They may be referred to a sleep specialist. But really the gold standard these days in treatment and and studies have found this again and again is something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia or what's known as CBTI. There aren't a lot of therapists trained in this, but for people who are really having a hard time, that can be a good way to go. And right now, in some ways, if, if people have, you know, obviously you need a computer and you need an internet connection and you need sort of the ability to, to find the person, but virtual therapy is, is much more common now. And this is the kind of thing that can be administered virtually and can be successfully done that way. And are there any other ways that people can try to get better sleep? Yeah, there certainly are. As we mentioned earlier, screens, particularly around bed, are are not a good idea. Doctors I spoke to said, you know, at least an hour before bed, shut those off, get away from them, try to, you know, wind down. Another thing that that several experts I spoke to brought up was just this, the need to have sort of healthy circadian rhythms. And, and this is like your, your body's way of regulating your internal clock. 
and one of the things they're seeing is that people have been pushing back their bedtimes and then because they don't have to necessarily get up for a morning and, you know, run to the, to the bus stop to get to work, that they're pushing back their wake up times. That sort of causes almost a sense of jet lag, but, but also, um, in some cases deprives people of getting daylight early in the morning, which can be important, sort of an important circadian cue to sort of tell your body it's, it's daytime now. And then finally, you know, other circadian cues are things that are social. We're used to keeping normal schedules, going to work, having lunch with colleagues, maybe going to the grocery store after work or whatever it might be, picking the kids up at school. Without those, that also sort of, I guess, is somewhat confusing to the body. So keeping a schedule as much as possible is also something I heard as recommended. Karin Brouillard is a national reporter on the Health and Science Desk. The Daily 202 podcast is brought to you by Facebook. At Facebook, we continue to take steps to better secure our platforms. What's next? We support updated internet regulations to set new standards for data portability, privacy, and elections. Learn more at about.fb.com regulation. And now, one more thing. A question that's on a lot of readers' minds right now is whether humans can get some kind of immunity to the coronavirus either after we get a vaccine or after we recover from infection. Will this be like the flu where we'll need a new vaccine every year? Should we be nervous when we hear stories about people getting reinfected and getting sick all over again? And when I went to interview some immunologists and epidemiologists, I saw they were wondering the same thing. My name is Meryl Cornfield, and I'm a writer covering the pandemic for The Post. Immunity is your body's defense against foreign invaders like viruses. And with most viruses, our body has a multi-level defense system it deploys. One expert I talked to compared it to a medieval castle. You have your castle walls and moat, which are like your skin and mucus. And if the virus can get through those, it now has to face your body's warriors, T-cells, or specialized white blood cells that can recognize the virus and help neutralize the infection. And in the castle's towers, you might have archers with arrows. Those are like the longer living B-cells, which produce antibodies and fend off the invader over time. That means that the next time the invader or virus comes in, your body remembers how to fight it. Typically, you either don't get sick or don't get as sick. The good news is that scientists think that our body's response to the novel coronavirus is similar to the way it responds to other viruses, meaning the same defenses can work. 
They've also found that these defenses tend to stick around for three months after the coronavirus infection has run its course, even in patients with mild cases. Researchers are hoping to run longer studies to find out just how long those defenses can last. But every expert I talked to cautioned against assuming that antibodies mean we can't get sick again. Immunity isn't black and white. It's definitely possible to have antibodies and still get sick. But in the second time around, symptoms could be less severe or non-existent. Eventually, if enough people get vaccinated or infected and have immunity, we might be able to achieve something called herd immunity. Herd immunity is where so much of the population is immune that it makes it harder for the virus to circulate widely. Estimates for the percent of the population that would need to be exposed to reach herd immunity varies a lot, anywhere from 40 to 80 percent. That either means a ton of people were vaccinated or a ton of people got sick and potentially died. So herd immunity, like a vaccine, isn't a silver bullet. And the advice from scientists remains the same. Keep social distancing and, of course, wear a mask. Meryl Cornfield is a general assignment reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We have received quite a few emails and Facebook comments from listeners who have questions about voting in a pandemic, mail-in ballots, and how the election is going to work this year. If you have some of these questions, send them our way. Post them in our Facebook group or email us at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The Daily 202 podcast is brought to you by Facebook. At Facebook, we continue to take steps to better secure our platforms. What's next? We support updated internet regulations to set new standards for data portability, privacy, and elections. Learn more at about.fb.com slash regulation.